All right, uh, at long last, I plan to finish chapter two tonight. Uh, the, the majority of what's going to be discussed tonight is going to deal with fellowship and what real fellowship with brothers and sisters looks like. Um, to refresh our memory, Peter's wrapping up his sermon. Suddenly, the people listening start asking questions along, what shall we do? And, and we talked about how that that's an outreach of um, what shall we do to be saved even? What shall we do now? We've got all this guilt, all this conviction. What on earth shall we do? And Peter's direction to them is to repent. That if they repent, they'll be baptized. If they repent, they will have their sins forgiven. And if they repent, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And we discussed how that the word believe or belief really isn't in this section of Acts chapter 2, but it's implied throughout it. The belief in, in Christ being the Messiah. So tonight we'll jump in at verse 39, and I hope to complete the remainder of the chapter. And I'm going to offer up a word of warning. Uh, verses 43 through 47 are a little bit repetitive from what we've discussed in previous, previous teachings here. So I'm going to be a little bit selective of what I go through. I'll try to call that out clearly so we don't get lost in it all. Um, please stand. Let's, let's read uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 39 to 47. This is God's holy and errant word. It is efficient and it is sufficient. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together and gladness and, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. This is your word, Father. This is the word that you have revealed to us, your children. Help us to absorb all that you would have us to know. And, and Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to grow in you, Lord. Help us to stay in your will, Father. We, we ask that you just have your way with this service. That your Holy Spirit will lead us. Your words will be spoken and you'll give us the ears to hear and understand what you'd have us to, to hear. Clear our minds, Lord, so that we can concentrate on you. We love you and thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen. 
So in, in verse 39, it reads, For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And here we have this word for starting this verse again, and we talked about it the last time I was here speaking. And this word for is a conjunction. It's also a preposition, but here it's being used as a conjunction where it connects this verse to at least the preceding verse, the verse before it. Or it may be two or three. It may be the whole chapter before it. You have to read the context to determine that. But this word for, here as well as when we talked about for the forgiveness of sins, this word for can also mean because of, or because of this, or on the basis of. Or us as readers, we can look at that and we can say on the basis of what we have just read. And we haven't taken anything out of context here in this three-letter word. So understand, this word for has meaning. This is connected to what we have just learned in the previous verse. And Peter continues his preaching here in a bit of an extended service in a way. Um, his first words here are a promise about the promise. But you may ask, what promise? Well, if we go back midway through chapter 2, we end up hearing him talk about the book of Joel. And he picks some particular verses out there. And in this book of Joel, he quotes, and we find a promise from God stating that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And this is again confirmed in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, when the apostles were instructed, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. The fact that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promise here is confirmed again in verse 5 when it says, For John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Promise after promise after promise involving the Holy Spirit. And as we read on, we realize the Holy Spirit is referred to by Peter as the gift in verse 38. And verse 38 is about more than just receiving the Holy Spirit. This verse is speaking of salvation through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The promise referred to includes receiving the Holy Spirit, but in many of these applications, this promise is of salvation through the Holy Spirit as well. One could also state that the promise is concerning all that was written in these verses of Joel. And I think this too would be correct. When we see the very last verse in Joel, verse 21, it reads, And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise, right? This is salvation again. Not to leave the Holy Spirit out here because the, the salvation is the work of the Spirit. But his being there, his reason for being there. One can further insist that the promises concerning the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in various parts of the Bible. Here too, one would be correct. But when you think about someone having the Holy Spirit poured out on them, I've found basically two reasons for that. It has two purposes. The vast majority of the time it is salvation. There are a few occasions where that the Holy Spirit is referred to as being poured out, where it's for strengthening. 
So as, as we go through this, salvation being the primary purpose, strengthening being another less often used person, the awesome work of the Holy Spirit in transforming the heart is definitely the first step in the conversion process and that regeneration of the heart. And the, the, the Holy Spirit is definitely the agent of salvation here. And here again, this is the promise. Now, when we think of the filling of the Holy Spirit for strengthening, I need to clean that up just a little. Acts chapter 4. John and Peter are pursued, captured, imprisoned, released. But they're released on the stipulation, don't be spreading that gospel anymore. Don't be using that name. And John and Peter break out into a prayer. And um, the scripture records it, that while they were praying, and when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. We've already seen Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. Here they're filled again, right? Along with potentially others, it says we're all. I don't know what all means there. Were there other people there with them other than just them? Very possibly. Some of them may not have been saved. Some of them may not have been filled. But it says all were filled, and we know that John and Peter had been. But it tells us the reason is so that they could speak the word of God with confidence. They had just been instructed by the Jews, we're going to turn you loose, but don't do this anymore. But now they're going out and they're preaching with confidence. I'm certain that John and Peter were already spirit-filled. We've already read that. What we see here is a topping off of the Spirit, an extra dose of the Spirit, an extra movement of the Spirit to give them the strength to continue on with their ministry. And I encourage you to read this whole chapter, chapter 4. We're going to get there eventually, and we'll go through it verse by verse. But that's a really powerful chapter about faith, about doubt, about being in a trying situation and how you deal with that. There's, there's a lot in that chapter. Don't be afraid to go ahead over the, this week and read that. It's a good reading. It's, a, it's really good. The verse goes on to explain who this, pro, who this promise is intended for. It reads, the promise is for you and your children. I think it's quite fitting that Peter would stress that this promise is for the Jews. Not just for the apostles, but it's for the Jews as well. And it's not just for these Jews that are hearing. It's for you and your children. You and your seed. And the Jewish tradition is filled with events where that this is, I am the son of Lynn. This, the Bible's filled with so-and-so begot so-and-so. The lineage is, is a huge tradition in, in the, the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish, Jewish culture. So Peter's making it clear that according to even your culture, your children can have this promise. The promise of receiving the freeing spirit of God and experience the glorious guilt-relieving state of salvation. 
And we know that these are familiar, this is familiar. God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. And he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. These were very familiar words. Didn't Abraham and God have some kind of agreement that sounded a lot like this? And it applies here with Christ. But these are not the only ones that the promise goes to. The verse goes on and says, and for all who are far off. And this goes on to include the Gentiles, of course. The Gentiles have always been treated as second-rate people, a lower class of people by the Jewish leadership. And Paul, he clarifies this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, and I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to pause a little bit here as I read this and explain a couple of things, because this is one of those Pauline verses that can be cumbersome. So I want to go through it slowly. It says, therefore... Remember that formerly you, and then he explains you by saying, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. The Gentiles are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. It's the Jewish leadership. Therefore, remember that formerly you, The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And I'm going to go to the rest of the, that verse in a minute. Here we have this, this contrast of circumcision versus uncircumcision. Gentiles are the un, the Jews are the circumcised. And we've heard this verbiage before, right? A kid named David who went to see his brothers at the battle line. And this giant named Goliath was standing out there taunting the army of the Israel nation. And David comes to visit with his brothers and bring them supplies. And he hears Goliath saying these things demeaning to God and to the Israelis. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine talking down about my God? 1 Samuel 17, 26. Who is this uncircumcised? This is Jewish leadership, right? David's king would be shortly after this. Even David viewed it that way. But Paul goes on here to say, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And I had to stop and ask myself, why did he say this? Why did he say this? It's performed in the flesh by human hands. God didn't do this. This is something that the, the people are doing. He's on the edge of saying this is meaningless, right? Doesn't mean anything. And it says, remember that you were at the time without Christ alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, same words, right? Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So these words far off, when we read them, obviously this covers distance. We read about the people from different nations, many nations, being here in the streets of Jerusalem, from Rome to Turkey. They were from everywhere. So far off covers distance. Far off covers more than distance. This covers us. We're under this verse. This is us. We who believe today. Far off covers a distance of time. At least 2,000 years into the future, right? And it not only covers the distance of, of, of mileage, of space or place, and not only the distance of time in the future, it covers the distance of being good or evil, lost or saved, godly or ungodly. Those who are far off, that covers a lot. But we did hear the call and we experienced God's mercy and he called us to himself. Now Peter closes this verse with some verbiage that says, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And this verse brings out the fact that the salvation belongs to the Lord. Not only does he decide who will be saved, but also the manner in which we're going to be saved. The point in time, the place, how does it happen? These are all gods. And this is displayed through his sovereign work of salvation. While this is just one more verse confirming the doctrine of election, we need to not abandon, we need to remember that the doctrine of election is, is a great doctrine. It's salvation in there. There's also the responsibility of man that we talked about the last time. And those who don't believe, the people who murdered Christ were performing God's predetermined plan. Well, if they're doing his plan, how's it sin? They didn't kill him because it was the plan. They killed him because they were murderers and they hated him. There's a responsibility of man here that we need to realize as well. John MacArthur talked about this. He said, a biblical view of salvation does not exclude either human responsibility or divine sovereignty. It allows these two points of emphasis to be considered and to remain in tension There's a little bit of a struggle there for us. There's tension there. And he continues, we must resist the attempt to harmonize what Scripture does not harmonize. And we need to be content in the knowledge that there is no ultimate contradiction in God's mind. Just because we can't understand it completely or clearly doesn't make it wrong. Right? Right? And Peter really says a lot here in a few words. When we think back, this this sermon is 30 plus verses long. His direct teaching and preaching is strong. His implied verbiage may even be stronger. 
And if Peter were here today, he would be the first to tell us that the Holy Spirit gave him those words. He didn't spend a week or two weeks like I end up doing, coming here and preparing to bring this message. They received the Holy Spirit and he walked out and started preaching. And he would also likely tell us that there were a lot more words spoken than what's recorded here. Because in verses 40 and 41 it says, And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Of course, with many words here, it does tell us that there were other words spoken than what's recorded. What is recorded here is a Holy Spirit-guided highlight of what that sermon said. The things that we really need to know are here. There were other things spoken. And he's simply letting us know this. This verse carries this even one step further with verbiage that he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them. Here we were thinking the sermon is over, but not so fast. Luke may be trying to tell us that even though Peter's sermon or his message had been delivered, the Holy Spirit desires that he continue to speak to this crowd, to continue exhorting them. Well, what, what, what is he continuing speaking about? Jesus is the Messiah. That's been the focus this whole way through. Jesus is the Christ. You killed him. Jesus is the Christ. His blood is on your hands. And then he further, he goes on and instruct them, instructs them, be saved from this crooked generation. This crooked generation are going to be words that the Jewish leadership is very familiar with. This crooked generation is something that they've heard many times. Jesus repeatedly used these words in application of the Jewish leadership. Matthew 12, 39 says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And I'm going to stop right there. As a side note, if you haven't read this, Jesus goes on to explain how that Jonah being in the, the belly of the fish for three days is symbolic of him being in the grave for three days. Another interesting read if you get time. But these are very similar words that Jesus spoke, not just here in Matthew 12, but in Matthew 16, 4. Matthew 12, 45, he says it again. Matthew 17, 17, Luke 11, 29, Luke 9, 41, Mark 8, 38, and I know there's more, I just stopped there. This crooked generation. And I think the Apostle Peter is intentionally using this verbiage for two reasons. Number one, these are words that Christ spoke, and everyone knows that Christ spoke these words. And he wants Christ to have the credit. And he wants the validity based on Christ and what Christ spoke. Christ was speaking all truth. And we're carrying that forward. Another reason he uses this verbiage is because he's speaking directly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They very likely were mingled into the crowd. And if they weren't mingled into this crowd, there's no doubt there were people in that crowd that were going to go run into them and tell them what Peter had said. 
The word's going to get back to them. You know what he called you? No, what? A crooked generation. And I'm sure that light's going to come on in their mind and say, Jesus Christ called us this many times. It's the same words. Simon Kistemacher stated that this corrupt generation is obviously speaking of the religious leaders who at Jesus' trial incited the crowd to shout, crucify him. We think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were deceivers of the common people. They were a crooked generation. They deceived them with interpretations of the law based on what they wanted the law to say and not what it truly said, not the law of God, but the law of man. It was filled with traditions and man-driven things, and the true intent of the law was left behind. The people suffered from that. That made them a crooked generation. And as I was searching through these, I ran across one verse that used this same terminology that would really have driven home what Jesus was implying in calling them this. I'm sure they knew all about Deuteronomy 32.5, where it says they have acted corruptly toward him with a capital letter. They are not his children, capital H, because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. I'm sure they knew all about that. Deuteronomy was their go-to. And when you really look at what Peter is saying here in regards to this, he's simply warning them that they need to beware of this generation. This generation who are deniers of Christ. That's putting it as simple as you can. They were deniers of Christ. They hung him on the tree. They cannot truly be Christ until they disassociate themselves from the enemies of Jesus. That sounds pretty harsh. You back it up with scripture, we go to 2 Corinthians 6.14 and it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And fellowship, what fellowship has light with darkness? Beware of this crooked generation. So after the preaching of God's word and all the witnessing and the continued exhorting, we see that about 3,000 souls repented and believed and were baptized. How long would it take you to baptize 3,000, Josh? I mean, I don't know. He had 12 apostles to help him, I assume. That could, that could have been a long event, right? A good one. And I have a hard time imagining a group of 3,000 unsuspecting people, unexpecting people, standing in the streets, Jews at a Jewish festival called Pentecost, and some street preacher comes out on the corner and starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 souls are saved. Amen. There's 30 verses covering his sermon. Many other words were spoken, but the important ones are done in 30 verses. Church grew from 120 strong to 3,120 in an hour or whatever that time it took him to preach that sermon. I can't imagine 
the irresistible grace that just poured out upon these people. There's no refusing it. The effectual calling, 3,000 people on their knees. What shall we do? At the same time, we know that there were those people there that, uh, that refused. They denied. But it still amazes me, these are the same people that cried out, give us Barabbas. Hang him, give us a criminal. What an example of the Holy Spirit moving and acting and doing. As we move forward through this study in the book of Acts, we have to realize that this is only the beginning of the growth of the church. By the time we get to chapter 8, which may be about eight years from now at this rate, but uh, by the time we get to chapter 8, the church is going to be to like an estimated 20,000 strong. But it doesn't stop there. The church is still growing today. Every time somebody gets saved, the church grows by one more person. The kingdom still grows. The percentages may be out of balance, saved versus lost, but the kingdom grows one more person every time someone is saved. And this growth is going to continue until whatever the end of time looks like. When the Messiah returns and gathers those that the Father has given him, both the living and the dead. So Luke is going to spend a little bit of time explaining the Christian life after the receiving of the gift of salvation. In verses 42 through 47, we read those a minute ago. And, and as I start in verse 42 and work my way through that, the first thing that really catches my eye is that these new believers are dedicating themselves to the sound doctrine of the apostles. Do we understand what the sound doctrine and the teaching of the apostles are? Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission. Teach them all that I have commanded you. Make disciples of all the nations and teach them all that I commanded you. From this alone, we can be assured that the new believers are hearing all about all the doctrines of Jesus. All about the virgin birth. All about a perfect life, a perfect death. All the teachings up to that point. The burial, the resurrection, the teachings that continued after the resurrection, the appearing to the witnesses of thousands of people, the ascension of Christ. And now the continued ministry of Christ continues in these people. Today when a church is started, and oftentimes it seems like proper doctrine is probably the last thing they consider. Their concern's more about what do the people want? How are we going to entertain them while they're here? And whatever we do, do not say anything in this book that might be offensive to someone. I'm thankful we don't do that here. It may result in us being a smaller church, but I'd a whole lot rather be a part of the remnant as not. So what we end up with when churches do this, we end up with a bunch of weak doctrine 
coming from weak pastors to an ever-weakening congregation that are supposed to be the disciples going into the nations and teaching people everything that God said, everything that Jesus Christ commanded them. How are they going to do that? If they don't know the doctrine. Paul addressed this in a similar scenario. Galatians 1 verses 6 through 8. It reads, I marvel that you are quickly deserting him, capital H, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. We don't want a bunch of theology taught here. We don't need all that boring doctrinal stuff. Is it possible for a spirit-filled Christian to neglect God's word? Is that even possible? For them to have no hunger for what the word says at all? I know everyone's not given a gift of teaching or preaching or exhorting. or But shouldn't everyone have some level of hunger to know what God has revealed to us? Some basic understanding. The example we're given here in chapter 2 says that a spirit-filled Christian will desire the word of God and hunger for its truth. This is the behavior of the new believers we're reading about. They're hungry for more and more. And it's verified with the phrase where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does this mean? They're doing this every day. They're setting aside some amount of time. They've got someone teaching them. They're reading the scriptures. They're able to ask questions. What does this mean? How do I take this understanding? Does this mean? Devoting oneself points to a steadfast fervor, dedication to the apostles' teaching. Another thing they were continually devoting themselves to is fellowship. Fellowship, defined in the dictionary, talks about companionship, friendly association, mutual sharing of experiences and activities, a group of people with the same interest. These new believers were becoming more than just close friends. They're family. They're growing to realize that these are my brothers and my sisters. As mentioned in the definition and later in verses 44 and 46, they had a common singular mindset. They were of one accord. So there's truth there. They had the one and the same mission now. Fellowship in and of itself is like a bright torch that all the believers carry for all the people to see. It brings about unity and like-mindedness. We're all in this together. We're carrying the gospel forward. This is the behavior that Christ desires from his bride. What better way to enjoy the love of God and the peace of Christ than to do it together with other people who love him? The scriptures speak clearly about fellowship. 
Galatians 2.9, Paul is showing sincere gratitude to James, Peter, and John, whose fellowship with him and Barabbas strengthened them to be able to preach to the Gentiles. In 1 John 1.7, John states that if we walk in the light together, we will have great fellowship with one another. Another benefit of true fellowship with like-minded believers is found in Proverbs 27.17, and it states, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. They weren't sitting around sharpening their pocket knife. Maybe they were. This is a reference to sharpening our knowledge and discussing the scriptures, being in prayer. This verse simply states that learning, strengthening, assurance, and other desirable traits are more easily honed when you're in fellowship with others. This is the expectation. And I'm going to close this section on fellowship with uh, a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And these are hard words. This is not easy verbiage to say. But he says, The men and women of the 3,000 had become Christians. How did they show it? They separated themselves from what they had been, and they joined the church, and they continued in the church. One of the first tests you must apply to yourself or others in order to discover whether you are whether or not you are a Christian, is to ask the question, do you want to come together with other Christians? If the answer is no, you don't want to have anything to do with other Christians, you need to check your spiritual pulse, because this salvation you're claiming may not be real. Those are hard words, but that doesn't make it untrue. Also contained in this verse is the mention of breaking and bread. And I spent a lot of times looking at breaking of bread. And there's a mix of opinion amongst the commentators that I use. Some said it's the Lord's Supper. Some said they were just eating together. My personal opinion is this. Don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what breaking of bread means here. Because I'm absolutely certain they were doing both. They were partaking of communion and the Lord's Supper and they were eating together too. Because if you go to verse 46, it says, And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And I probably spent two hours trying to figure out, okay, which one is it? Which one? Sometimes you get too lost in the, in the mire. Clearly here at Shepherd's Rock, we firmly believe that eating together is a necessity. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Once a month, we tend to we get together after the Sunday service, and everybody brings in food and contributes in some way at some level. And if someone can't afford to contribute or they're a visitor and they don't have anything to put forward, they're more than welcome, especially welcome, to come. And come and eat without price, without paying, no repayments necessary. Please come. Let's just get to know one another. There's something special about breaking bread together. The apostles and Jesus Christ himself saw value in this. Before Jesus gave his dissertation about this is my body and this is my blood, what were they doing? They were eating supper. It was the Passover meal. I'll give them that. But they were laying back. John had his head on Jesus' chest and they're 
probably kicking at one another and just enjoying their company and having a meal, breaking bread together. Jesus even called himself the bread of life. John 6, 36, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Many of the miracles that Christ did pertain to feeding the multitudes. Oh, we've only got two fish and a few loaves. Oh, 5,000 people here. And they had more leftovers than they started with somehow. Bless the food, right? Let's face it, food is a provision that we all need. And you don't have to look at me very long to realize that I, I enjoy it more than I should. And ultimately, no matter who your employer is, no matter what your financial status is, we never forget that the one who's really providing to us is God himself. Your employer, your financial status, these are tools that he uses. Verse 42 closes with the recognition of the new believer's devotion to prayer. <clears throat> This may be the hardest part of what I've got to teach tonight. Prayer has a common theme here. The 120 were devoted in prayer, chapter 1, verse 14, while they waited for the Holy Spirit, the promise to come. And, and I need a little bit of congregational participation here. I know that's not very Reformed Baptist of us, but how many people here struggle with prayer? How many people here hit that roadblock in your prayer? How many people here lose focus when you're praying? My hand is still up. I struggle with it. I'm going to offer you some advice like I'm good at it, okay? And I'm not. I make no claims to be a glorious prayer warrior. I pray for all of you. I try hard to do it every day. But I'm going to offer you some advice, some things that have helped me. If you're really struggling, set aside an amount of time. If it's just five minutes, if it's ten minutes, set it aside every day. At the same time every day or as close to it as you can. Maybe it's nine o'clock at night. Maybe it's as soon as you get up in the morning. Maybe it's right before you have your lunch. Maybe it's after your lunch. You, you pick. God will listen to you anytime. But set that time aside and do it. Builds good habits. We are creatures of habit. I've mentioned before, and I've had people ask me about it, and I've tried to define it, and I don't feel like I've done a very good job of it, but I've talked about praying in the Psalms. And probably should have said pray in the Scriptures, because there's a whole lot more than the Psalms you can do that with. Blevins used to do it with us all the time, and I had no clue what he was doing. Looking back at it, it's crystal clear. But when, you, when you're praying, get your Bible out. Find you a psalm. Go to the Lord's Prayer. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is a really good one. It fits about all occasions. Open your Bible up to that psalm. You pick it. it it's all God's Word, right? And have it opened in front of you. And whenever you come to that roadblock... I've said all I need to say. Open your eyes and read about five words. Maybe it's eight. Maybe it's ten. 
And then tell God what those words mean to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Thank you for being my provider, for guiding me as a sheep. I need a shepherd. Thank you for all you do. You protect my family. You provide me with income. And then you go to the next part of the verse and the next part of the verse. It's, it's really not rocket science, but it's hard to do somehow. It's hard to make yourself do somehow. And you do this verse after verse. And before you know it, that 10 minutes becomes 15, and that 15 becomes 20. And before you know it, you don't need your Bible as much as you used to. And before you know it, you're just having a good conversation with God. Prayer is a lot of things in prayer. What do I I talk to him about? What, what, What do we do? You thank him. You praise him. You petition your needs. You pray for others. You pray for support of others. You pray for forgiveness. You thank him for forgiveness. pray for your church you pray for your government leaders you make a list right so I'm going to give this a try and I'm going to use uh, <clears throat> Matthew 6 9 and I've got the verses written down here I don't have anything else written but I'm going to try this because I feel like the best way for you to understand how to do it is for me to do just a little bit of this. I want you to know. I want you to want this to be something that you can at least attempt to do when you're in your prayer closet, when you're at home. So if you will, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven. Father, we're thankful that you're in heaven. We want to join you, but we're thankful you're there. You're in control. You have ordained everything before us. And we know that all things work out to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Father, you have Christ at your right hand. And we have unity with you and we have nothing to fear. Thank you. Thank you for being in heaven. And we look forward to joining you and being in your presence. Hallowed be your name. And we don't use this word commonly, Lord, but we know that it means holy somehow. And we know that you are holy, you're perfect, you're righteous. You created everything. You created it perfectly and we corrupted it somehow. Father, we, we, we thank you for your holiness, but not just that, your justice, for your mercy, for your grace, for all that you do for us. Father, your word says your kingdom come, your will be done. And and Father, we're just so thankful to be a part of your kingdom. That that you have come and got us, you've called to us. And that your will will be done, Lord, and, and here on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't even know what that looks like. But we pray for your will to be done, Lord. Keep us in your will, Lord. Help us to bring your will about being done. Use us. 
and give us this day our daily bread. And we read about daily bread and we talked about it a few minutes ago. And we think about food and the provision of food and we thank you for, for always providing us with what we need. But we also recognize that when we talk about the daily bread, we can be talking about your word. We could be talking about Jesus. He said he's the bread of life. Keep us in your word daily. Help us to, to remember Christ daily. Help us to stay in his presence. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and Lord, I found myself asking for your forgiveness many times. You're probably tired of hearing from me. But I thank you for always listening. I thank you that your mercies and your grace is new every day. And Lord, this part about forgiving our debtors, I really need some help with that. I know that vengeance is yours and you will repay. Help me to remember that. Help me to have a more forgiving heart that I not automatically jump to judgment. And Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we know that you've told us that you will not put more on us than we can stand. And that you'll always be there with us. And that you will protect us and be our shield. But Father, if it be your will to keep us, keep us from going to him, to the evil one. We can make decisions with the best of intentions and end up going the wrong way. Help us not to do those things, Lord. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I don't know if that meant anything to you all, but I felt like I should do that. I know I've had people ask me, and it's really hard to explain how to pray in the scriptures. I hope, I hope that someone here gains from that. Uh, people, we just need to pray. Praying is a spiritual way for you to express your faith in the one true God that you cannot see but that you believe in. You're doing this directly with and to him. Prayer is a face-to-face -face uh, event. A child of God, you have the right to approach the throne of grace directly. You can go in there and say, Dad, I'm in trouble. Dad, I'm so thankful. Father, why do you hear this? You're a child of the king. You have the right to go. And God wants us to pray. He desires our prayers. He desires our relationship. In doing this, we're building a more intimate relationship with God. The one who saved us from eternal torment. Don't you want to talk to him? We too should make this a common practice. God is pleased when we pray to him, even if we don't know what to say. Verse 43, and I'm, I'm going to, I've got just a little bit more to cover. Verse 43 talks about signs and wonders, and I'm not going to cover that here tonight. Of the next teaching that I do, we'll start dealing with the miracle that the apostles perform. And we'll, we'll get into that more then. Verse 45 needs a little discussion because this verse can be very misinterpreted. It reads, And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up as anyone might have need. 
careful reading here through this verse, we can understand that this verse is not, is not a call for everyone to go out and sell everything you own. It's not a call for you to put all those funds into a common pool here at the vault of the church and we'll distribute it out accordingly as people have needs. That's not what that says. What this verse says is, is that when someone has a need, even to the point of selling and bartering their own goods, they found ways to meet the needs of the people. We read later in the verses that they went house to house. People still had houses, right? It's not like they sold everything here. But it's all about being able to help your fellow brother and sister in Christ. The church today should be that way. When a member of the church has a true need, we should be there to help. This is not to say that the church should just continually hand out to the same scenario over and over and over again, repeatedly. There are those people out there trying to make a living off of the cusp of the church and the giving attitude of the church. And our elders are faced with the challenge of filtering through that. But as far as helping others, that's why we're here. Vic used to say it's a hospital for the sin sick. And I really appreciate that. We were all sick with sin and we came to the hospital. And God cured us. Still sinful in ways. But man, we are so far from where we once were. The church today should be that way. The right thing to do is to offer a hand up to our brothers and sisters in Christ and help share their load until they can get back on their feet. Helping with difficult situations is something we should do. Enabling people to live lifestyles that are hindering their ability to sustain themselves as well as potentially hindering them from the Savior is a totally different problem. We can't enable people. Verse 46 has been covered as it is primarily about fellowship. But I did want to note one thing here. The part about gladness and sincerity of heart. Fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ should be done with sincerity of heart. We should laugh and we should have fun, but we should be sincere in that. If we are, gladness will come from it. And I realize that some brothers and sisters are more enjoyable than others. Let's just go ahead and get that out there. But we're all family. And being a good Reformed church, we know that we don't get to pick our family. God does that for us. But we're to love one another. This is family. This is what the new believers are doing. Been a Christian for this many years. And they're doing what I haven't done. They're new believers. They're days old. As a church, we should try and embrace all people whom God sends our way. With love and long-suffering as much as we possibly can. And we're all an ongoing work in Christ, and we need to remember that. We all need perfecting until the Father decides to call us home. 
last couple of items here that I want to I look at quickly. 3,120 believers were having favor with all people in verse 47. Having favor with all the people. I really struggled with that at first. The world hates you because it hated me. Persecution, martyrdom. John 13, 35 reads, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Fellowship. The group of believers had not isolated themselves to their own commune. They were going to the temple with a like-minded, one accord, proclaiming their newfound faith in the Jewish temple. Transformed lives were for all to see. He who was sour all the time is now sweet. He who was unapproachable is now open. Who wanted to speak about the trials of the world all the time, and you know that person. Now they want to talk about the scripture. They want to talk about God. The way that God's working in their life or the things they're seeing happen. But these are just some of the fruits. Chapter 5 in Galatians, beginning of the verse 42, says the fruit of the Spirit, the promise, right? Salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. You can do these all day long and you won't break the law. You can do these all day long and you won't go to jail. You won't get a ticket. You won't get a warning. If you have self-control, you don't have to have self-control, right? Think about it. One of my personal favorite verses is John 17, 21. <clears throat> this is Christ's prayer to the Father. And I uh, wish Richard was here tonight. He touched on this the other night at the small group at the house. They that may, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus Christ praying to the Father that we will have the same relationship with them that the Father has with the Son. That prayer is going to get answered, right? This is Jesus praying to the Father. The only thing in its way is us. Right? That prayer is going to get answered. It boggles my mind that the Savior prays for someone like me. To be in union like the Father and the Son are. Unity of these people being of one accord must have been an excellent witness to all who were around them. And it is through these believers' testimony and witness that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, how we should pray that we could somehow be a light in this world like this for all to see that we can be used to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. 
fellowship is viewed as an important part of being a Christian. These early believers have given us all an example to follow. And clearly this practice is far removed from what the mainline church today practices. From the way they avoid doctrine to the way they worship. It's turned in entertainment. Being a Christian has somehow evolved into something far short of what we've seen here in Acts chapter 2. Ultimately, we should remember a few things from Acts chapter 2. All of this happened and continues to happen because of him. Because of Jesus Christ. The same Holy Spirit who moved mountains of people on this day of Pentecost is the same one who abides in us today. The same Holy Spirit that led these new believers to study, worship, break bread together, pray together, lives in us today. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit will help us develop unity of togetherness and family such as what has been recorded here. May God bless us with his love and his peace, his wonderful fellowship from now until our last days come. And may we be like the Jews in the way of let's try to leave a generation behind us who believe and carry on the work of the disciples in the Great Commission. I thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we earnestly pray for unity in your body, we the believers. May we ever focus on you, your word, your teaching, your love for us, Father. I thank you for this church family. While we may not be large in numbers, Lord, we are large in concern for one another, for your teaching, and for you, Lord. Guide us, Father, as we come and go over the next days and weeks. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all you will continue to do for us. Keep us safe as we go home and to our workplaces. And, Father, we love you because you loved us first. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>